print it out and you'll see all these numbers. You don't have to write all this down. You can just go and download the notes right online. Don't write it down. Here's a timeline that we're talking about. Okay. So the Ottoman, the Turkish, uh, the Turks uh, were there until 1917, and we'll talk why, why that ended. Okay. And the answer is World War One. And then we, well, today we'll talk about a period called the British Mandate from 1918, basically the first half of the 20th century. And we'll specifically talk about um, these three plus the, the, a white sheet. You'll see. We'll talk about the Balfour Declaration, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and the Peel Plan, and Churchill's white sheet. We'll, we'll look at that today. We'll talk about what happened with World War II, and then we'll talk about the modern Israeli state and its conflict and the modern the rest of the period today, and then Thursday we'll talk about the Arab-Israeli-Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict. Okay. Okay. I'm going to move forward here. So the British are coming, but this time not to the U.S., uh, this time to the Near East. Okay. So the British conquer Egypt, right? they take Egypt in 1882. Okay. So this is still part of the part of the United Kingdom's uh, imperialization, right? They're in India, they're in Egypt, they're in right to this day. The money spent is called Egyptian pounds, like British pounds, right? Um, um, and imperialization is still taking place, although it's beginning to come into decline. Basically, you'll see one of the things that marks the first half of the 20th century is the backing away of imperialization. The backing away of this thing where you can just go conquer people, take their land, set up shop, um, that's going, and, I, and I've made this example a couple times, uh, when the U.S. went in to liberate Iraq, when they went in to, to fight in Iraq, it was always, we're going to liberate the people and give the country back, and that's just kind of a modern notion. Nobody did that. If you conquered a country, you took it and you split it up and you, you had oil and you took their gold and you, you, you use it for economic, and you exploited it, and then when it was out of stuff, you left. Um, but we're, it's different today, let's just say that. And th that starts to decline in this period. So the big thing that brought it into the Ottoman Empire was World War I. Um, the Ottomans had aligned with Germany and the Russian Empire. Um, pardon me, the, the um, Ottomans aligned with Germany um, against France, Britain, and, and Russia, the, the Russian Empire. Um, so and then, so these are called the Allies, by the way. I don't know if you ever studied World War One, but the Allies were basically France and Britain, uh, Russia, and they're up against the Central Powers, and they're named that because of their central location in in uh, Europe. It's the German Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, Bulgaria, all of these types. Um, they're setting up for a war. Jerusalem. Again, this isn't a World War One history class. It's a it's a Jerusalem class. Um, Jerusalem becomes the headquarters for the Turkish court, for the Eighth Turkish Court, um, and they're basically going to defend this, this stretch of land, what what is uh, Israel Palestine today. But one of the events that takes place around the time of the beginning of World War One is what is known today as the Armenian Genocide. Again, a very sensitive subject. Many people have never heard of it. It's just like, uh, or some people call it the Armenian Holocaust. Turkey, obviously the modern state of Turkey, really doesn't like this terminology. I think it's part of a war that went on. Um, but what you've got is a Holocaust, the extermination of a group of people, um, or the dislocation of them, trying to move them, move them away or kill them. Um, a lot of them. Similar to what you saw uh, during World War II to the Jews. The difference being that everybody knows about the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust, and very few people are familiar with the Armenian Holocaust. And every time uh, Turkey starts to not do things that the U.S. wants, there's always a senator or a member of the House of Representatives that starts to bring up, hey, why don't we talk about this Armenian Holocaust? We had a lot of Armenians killed because they were Armenian, because they were living in Turkey. Um, let's talk about it. Of course, Turkey doesn't like it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to acknowledge it. It's, it's, it's in the past. Let's not... And it's a very, it's a point of tension. The reason we bring it up is that during World War One, a lot of these Armenians flee to Jerusalem, to what is now the Armenian quarter. 
Okay, so the Armenian quarter starts to swell with immigrants coming from uh, Turkey, Armenia. Um, and uh, so you've got, you've got what is World War I? You've got um, Egypt, uh, had con uh, pardon me, Britain had control of Egypt, and now they're going to try to take and break in from the south and from the west into Ottoman-held or Turkish-held um, Palestine. Um, and ultimately, General Allenby conquers Palestine in 1917. Palestine was actually used to break the stalemate, kind of an entrenched war. They break through. And of course, we've already talked about uh, General Allenby's entrance into Jerusalem. Remember, he, when he came in to Jerusalem, he didn't want to do what Kaiser Wilhelm did before him, where he, where he knocked a hole in the wall so he could march in. Um, he got off his horse and he walked through the Jaffa Gate. So there's always this tradition of walking through the Jaffa Gate. But the British come in and basically take uh, Palestine. And we're going to look at it in just a second. But the Balfour Declaration um, is actually a plan, or a, pardon me, a, a declaration that encourages or at least backs the idea of a Jewish homeland. <coughs> um, but we'll look at it. We'll look at it more specifically here. So the period from when the British, uh, okay, of course, then the Ottomans uh, fall in World War One, right? The Ottoman Empire, uh, at, the, at the war's end, the major imperial powers, German, Russian, Austro-Hungarian, and Ottoman, had been militarily and politically eliminated. Okay. Now the, the Ottomans and the Austro-Hungarians are done. They, they, they cease to exist. And those <coughs> empires were carved up among the winners of the war. Russia had a different problem. You know it from Red October. Uh, about this time, the Russians said, eh, we're in both Bolshevik Revolution, the, the Soviet Revolution, and all of a sudden, they're no longer an empire. The Tsar goes away, and you have what, what became the Soviet Union. But the rest, as, as far as we're concerned for this class, um, Israel and, uh, pardon me, Palestine and Jerusalem um, comes under the jurisdiction of Britain and France. Um, the British promised to protect the holy places of all the faiths. They understand the importance of not upsetting anyone by, by uh, not being fair to places of faith. And Winston Churchill, before he was prime minister, uh, Winston Churchill actually wrote this white paper that we'll look at in a second that kind of explains the Balfour Declaration, because the Balfour Declaration, as we're going to see, um, was a little confusing to some people, mainly both sides. And then we'll look at the Peel Plan, which is a, an attempt to split up this land that is known today as Israel and Palestine into two separate states living side by side. This is not a new idea. It's been going on for some time. Okay. But what we're dealing with, British involvement in Palestine, and specifically in Jerusalem, comes about after the fall of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War I. That's what you would need to know. This period of British involvement from 1918, end of World War I, to 1948, when the Brits said, we're out of here, is called the British Mandate. Now, in the meantime, we see what, what can be described as a rise in anti-Semitism in Europe. Um, European nationalism was on the rise. And the question is, you know, all these different, you know, France and Germany and you know, all the Italy, everyone's got their own country, everyone's got their own place. And these people are not only an ethnicity, but they're, they're a nationality. Okay, they're, they're, they're a group of people. And the question begins to be asked, where's the land of the Jews? Where do they live, right? They have been basically settling in Europe. Remember, all the way back to Hadrian, you know, he, he banned Jews. 135 CE, and they left, right? They went away, and so they've been settling elsewhere. So you've got large Jewish populations in Eastern Europe and Europe, um, and now all of a sudden, the question is, well, where's our, where's our national homeland? The Germans have Germany, and the French have French have France. Where, where's our homeland? Um, but we lots of we begin to see a lot of uh, anti-Semitic pogroms in the Islamic world, and a lot of them were instigated by the Catholics. Remember, it's not just the Muslims that didn't necessarily get along with the Jews. A lot of the Christians didn't get along with the Jews. 
A lot of them did. A lot of Muslims and Jews lived side by side. A lot of Christians and Jews lived side by side. But when you're dealing with nationalism, when you're dealing with access to power and money, it's very easy to say, well, you're different than I am. So uh, we'll, we'll institute a plan, economic plans. Usually it's not run out of shizm, but it's, it's systems. I always refer to it as the lean. You begin to lean on people in political ways and economic ways. And you just make life miserable for them until they either go away or they fight. And once they fight, you can call them a terrorist, and then, then you can do something to them. So you just have to make life miserable for them economically, politically. And for some reason, that is nonviolent, right? That's supposed to be superior to actually using violence. So we can have that debate in another class. But is it better to use nonviolence if you're still going to make life miserable for someone you don't like? OK, so you're not being violent. And this is, by the way, at the heart of what we'll talk about on Thursday. What good is it to be nonviolent if you're not helping your neighbor, your so-called neighbor, or your, the people that you're supposed to be making peace with uh, develop economically, or, or uh, you're not making life easy for them politically, things like that. We'll talk about that on Thursday. You see them also in Russia. Um, you begin to see, OK, if, we, if if Europeans and Russians don't want Jews here, where do we go? Well, why don't we make a second Aliyah? Why don't we go to Jerusalem? Why don't we go back? If we want a homeland, let's go to our old homeland. So we begin to see Jewish immigration, I and I immigration, into uh, Palestine. And they begin to set up shop right there in and around Jerusalem. Um, so they're, they're fleeing this persecution in Europe and in Russia. Of course, the rise of Hitler and institutional anti-Semitism in Europe, specifically in Germany. The, we uh, see the population of Jews in Jerusalem rise from 18.9% in 1933 to 27, almost 28% in 1936. Now, there are other factors going on besides Hitler, but you're beginning to see this idea of, we're Jewish, let's go back to Jerusalem for the first time in a very long time. And of course, the Peel plan, we'll look at it, and I keep putting it up here, we'll look at it, is an attempt to deal with this. What do you do if you've got a land that's occupied by Arab Muslims and Christians who refer to themselves as Palestinian because of that's where they live, not because of that's the state they live in, right? At this time, there's no Palestinian state. It's the Ottoman Empire. Now, the Ottoman Empire has fallen, and the British have taken over, so now it's British Palestine. But you've still got Arab Christians and Muslims living there, referring to themselves as Palestinian. But they don't have their own government. They certainly don't have a Palestinian state. But they live there. And all of a sudden, you've got Jews moving in right, to Palestine, which is this area that's occupied uh, by the British. So now what's going to happen? This is the question. This is starting to, starting to uh, roll here. Zionism, we talked about a little uh, last week, um, comes into a full head. It becomes a full-blown movement, specifically secular Zionism. That is, we're not necessarily going to Jerusalem for religious purposes. There have always been very orthodox uh, Jews living in Jerusalem for religious purposes. But this is Jew, Jewish as an ethnicity, Jewish as an identity. Let's move to Jerusalem. Let's move to, and, and let's start to take up residence. And let's make this our homeland. The interesting thing is, though, it wasn't always necessarily supposed to be what is today Israel and Palestine. So this is where we're introduced to a man named Theodore Herzl. And he writes, The Jewish State. And he begins to talk about a state for Jews. Germans have Germany. The French have French. How about an Israel or a state, a Jewish state for Jews? But in Herzl's vision, Jerusalem, or at least the sanctity of it, has no real role. Herzl doesn't really care if we go back and make it in Jerusalem. In fact, Uganda was suggested as the location for a Zionist state. <laughs> Could you imagine if Herzl had won this, won this battle? If Herzl, if this is a Jewish, uh, uh, was responsible largely for the Zionist councils, um, which were basically groups of Jews from Europe, mostly some American, but mostly European Jews, saying, we need a Jewish homeland. And Herzl says, well, let's move to Uganda. We'll buy up some land, and we'll make a Jewish state there in Uganda. I, I just, what if he had, what if his ideas had won over? You know, we wouldn't have, you know, I would say we'd have some different problems, but we wouldn't have 
maybe the problem we have, maybe we would. Maybe we would. Um, but you should know Theodore Herzl. He's kind of Theodore Herzl. He's kind of this kind of the godfather of um, secular Jewish Zionism. Uh, in 1899, there was a first Zionist conference in, in Basel, Switzerland. Um, and some describe Herzl as the Messiah, the son of David, standing before us. And the reason I put that there is not because Herzl claimed to be Messiah, but because anytime you've got a person talking about Jews having their own state, that's by definition a, a Messiah, right? An anointed leader uh, who will, will, a political leader, a kingly leader, not necessarily a king, but uh, some kind of uh, political leader who will bring back this Jewish idea of oneness. So some describe him as a, as a messiah. Um, the Zionists actually go back and build Tel Aviv. Now the joke about Tel Aviv, for those of us who, who go to Israel all the time, is um, the Israelis had one chance to build a city that wasn't on top of something else. Right? Jerusalem was built up all, all these years, and all these other cities are built up on cities. And yes, there, was some, there were some remains in Tel Aviv, but they had one chance to do a fresh city from scratch, and they screwed it up too, right? It's, it's got all the problems. It's like Los Angeles. It's got all the traffic problems. It's got all the overpopulation problems. Tel Aviv, uh, and you can speak just as much English, and probably just as much Hebrew as you can in certain parts of Los Angeles, but um, it, that's where they, it wasn't Jerusalem that they focused on. It was Tel Aviv. It was this new city on the coast, a new uh, Jewish state, Mediterranean state. You know, think of all the great Mediterranean uh, towns. They wanted to make one like that. And then uh, we skip this here. There was a fund established to begin buying up land in Palestine. I said that Jerusalem didn't play a significant role. Like Uganda, you know, the sites in Africa were, were, were uh, put forward as alternatives. Um, doubly ironic, can you be doubly ironic? Doubly ironic is the fact that a lot of Orthodox Jews rejected Zionism as impious. Basically, if you were a true Jew and you're really concerned, you would already be here and you would worship regardless of whether or not you had a secular state. Now, it could be that the Orthodox Jews saw the rise of secular Zionism as a threat to themselves. And in fact, we'll see there began, there was a lot of Jewish infighting, groups of Jews fighting amongst themselves, basically for control. Just like you saw when the Palestinian state was declared, right, especially in the, in the last Palestinian elections, you see, as soon as the Israelis pull out of there, they begin to fight amongst themselves for control. If you're going to have a new thing, who's going to be in control of it, right? Who's going to be in control of this country? Well, 9-11 uh, happens, and everybody plays nice for a little while, months, I would say, not years. And all of a sudden, we're the most partisan. We're back to being partisan, Republicans and Democrats, and nobody wants to do anything. We're fighting amongst ourselves. And for rare is the occasion where there's an event that makes us all come together. And the same is true here. So a lot of the Orthodox Jews don't necessarily like the idea of the rise of a secular Jewish state, because that means those guys might have power. And as far as the Orthodox Jews are concerned, if you were really Jewish, you would be doing what we're doing, and we're already in control, so at least of their little niche. So they actually rejected secular Zion. But we see it happening for many, many reasons. The end of uh, the, the rise of World War II, this idea of nationalism, um, there's this desire to Jew, for Jews, to religious reasons, making a second aliyah, to move back to uh, Jerusalem. At the end of World War One, the French, the, the British were publicly stating, no, we're, once we defeat the Ottomans, um, we, are, we are right there, we are dedicated to an Arab state with an Arab government, and we're all for that. But secretly, the British and the French and it's called the Sykes-Picot, because it's named after uh, the French uh, leader of this, of this agreement and uh, the British leader of this agreement, Sykes-Picot, Sykes and Picot. They had the secret plan to divide up what, what is the southern end of the Ottoman Empire uh, between areas of direct control and areas of influence, both French and British. And it's not exact, but basically the idea is the British would take everything, since they were already in Egypt, controlling Egypt, right? <clears throat> they would take everything to the south. <coughs> so what is basically parts of Palestine, and then what is modern Jordan, and southern Iraq. So the British were going to take, basically, have 
influence zones where they would maybe appoint a local leaders but that were loyal to the British, and they would have areas of direct control where they would put British government officials in there and they would occupy the, the country and leave. Yeah. Of course, there's no need to take this because a lot of it's desert. And then you have Max Saudi Arabia and all that. It, they, they, they just wanted to form an Ottoman Empire. Um, and then the French would take things to the north. The reason so much of Lebanon today looks like French architecture is because the French controlled it for a long time. So they took uh, basically <coughs> Lebanon, Syria, uh, parts of southern Turkey, and then northern Iraq. Okay? So you have French influence and direct French control, British influence, direct British control. And then the area of Palestine, specifically around Jerusalem, was going to be jointly managed by them and the UN, and everybody would work together and kind of, because they knew that that was kind of a powder keg. It's Jerusalem after all. So this is the Sykes-Picot Agreement, a secret agreement, okay? Um, this isn't no Iraq, this is northern Iraq, but this is southern Iraq. The problem is, is that word of this gets out. And so now you've got People living in, and again, this is a Jerusalem class, we'll talk about Palestinians. We have Arabs and Christians, uh, pardon me, Arab Muslims and Christians living in and around Palestine that are waiting for their own state. They have nationalistic ambitions too, right? It's not just the Jews and, and the French, and everyone has nationalistic ambition. They've been dominated by the Ottomans for hundreds and hundreds of years, and now what they want is their own state. And they think that the Brits are going to come in and liberate the Ottomans and then help them create uh, an Arab state. And then this leaks out. Just kind of throw adds to a little distrust, if I can say that. Now, we mentioned the Balfour Declaration. The Sykes-Picot, I, I put ahead of it, uh, but it wasn't discovered until shortly after Balfour. So it was a secret agreement that was in place. Britain and France was going to carve up the, the southern end of the Ottoman Empire. Here's the Balfour Declaration. I want you to know this for this reason. The British Prime Minister, uh, Lloyd George, directs Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to write to Lord Rothschild. Lord Rothschild is this incredibly wealthy uh, Jew, Rothschild. And he writes him a letter and says, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. Specifically, His Majesty's government's view, pardon, His Majesty's government view would favor the establishment in Palestine of a, now watch the careful words here, of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which shall prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in, other, uh, in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. So what you have from Hyatt, basically from the, the Prime Minister of Britain, is a letter conveying sympathy. Basically, we, we sympathize with and we will support this idea of Jews moving, pardon me, of Jews um, having a national home in Palestine. <coughs> However, they also want to make very clear that there should be no prejudice against the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. The British recognizing there are already people there. Right? You can't just move into a country and take it over and hope that the people that are already there are saying, hey, this is mine, this is where I live. What do you mean this is now no longer, you know, we were waiting for a Palestine, a state, and now we're gonna get Israel? They're probably not gonna like that. So the Brits say, we're gonna encourage and be sympathetic towards the idea of a Jewish national homeland, not as, as long as it doesn't infringe upon uh, Palestinians are living. Of course, the language is intentionally ambiguous. It's a diplomatic document. He's supposed to take this letter back to the Zionist Federation, and they're going to interpret it as what? The British are going to back us. We should move forward. We should go in and try to establish a state in Israel. And the Brits say, uh-oh, we better explain this. So Winston Churchill writes a white paper. He gets a white paper, just kind of a 
kind of a, just kind of a, you use them in business all the time. You get out the white paper and you kind of make a, uh, I don't know, a outline of, of what you're going to say, what you're going to do, kind of your game plan. And, and Churchill writes a white paper. It's called the British White Paper of 1922. And he's got, they're trying to explain what they meant by the Baltimore Declaration. Because the Sykes-Picot Agreement leaked out, and it looks like Britain's planning on splitting with France this into British and uh, French-controlled areas, not a Palestinian state, not an Arab state. And then you've got the Baltimore Declaration that says, we don't want to infringe upon the rights of Palestinians, but we're, we're very sympathetic towards a Jewish national homeland in Palestine. So a lot of the Arab population, again, Arab Christian and Arab Muslim, are, are sitting there in Palestine going, you better explain yourself. Are you, are you about to screw us, or are you going to help us? What, what's going on? So they put out a white paper, issued on June 3rd, 22. And this was after an investigation of the Arab riots of 1920-21. The paper, and these are quotes, are reaffirmed by, con by the conference, uh, basically reaffirmed by the conference of the, of the principal allied powers uh, at San Remo, and again at the, Taud, uh, at the Treaty of Severus, uh, is not susceptible of change. Now, what are these things? Um, I made a note here. The Treaty of Severus uh, of August 10, 1920, was the peace treaty between the Ottoman Empire and the Allies at the end of World War I. Okay. So basically what they say is we're reaffirming um, this isn't going to change. All of the peace agreements that we, we negotiated, we're going to honor. Okay. And then later on, you, we actually see that Britain didn't support a Jewish national home, but rather a continuation of a community in Palestine. That is, the Brits can't be said to have wanted a, a state of Israel. But they were supportive of a Jewish national homeland in Palestine. It is, uh, it is contemplated that the status of all citizens of Palestine in the eyes of the law shall be Palestinian. And it has never been intended that they or any section of them should possess any other judicial, judicial status. Basically, why not, if you want to be Jewish living in what is known as Palestine, okay, you can be Palestinian, Jews living there. If you want to be uh, Arab, uh, Muslim, or an Arab Christian living in Palestine, okay. And you'll all be Palestinian, and that'll be the way we'll do things. That's what they said in the white paper was their original intent in the Balfour Declaration. Then in 1922, uh, Britain partitioned area to the west of the Jordan for a Jewish settlement. That is the Jordan River here that separates today Jordan, the modern state of Jordan, from the West Bank and Israel. They partitioned this area. The west of it um, was set aside for a Jewish settlement, and everything to the east of Jordan, which was 76%, far over to probably basically three-fourths of the British-controlled area, was to the west of uh, the Jordan River, what is today modern, uh, modern Jordan, was renamed Transjordan and given to the Emir Abdullah I, who became King Abdullah I of Transjordan. So you can see. From the beginning, there's a lot of suspicion as to what's going to happen, what's going to be the fate of this area, specifically with Jerusalem, but all, all of Palestine. You've got Arab Christians living there. You've got Arab Muslims living there. You're starting to see an influx of Jews. You've got the rise of Jewish Zionism. Right? And they, want, they want to go into this area here. And the Brits, who are controlling the area, are looking around going, this isn't good. We're in control, but you've got uh, Arabs starting to riot. For, for several reasons. You've got Jews coming in. They're asking for a Jewish national homeland. The Palestinians have been asking for a, a homeland to call their home for a long time. I mean, they live there, but they want a state. Nationalism is on the rise, right? And they just, they see it, they see it, and they're trying to placate both sides, and they're making agreements, and all they're doing is upsetting both sides. Question? Yeah, let's go on. Well, if you want, you can ask questions at the end. In 1937, uh, it was suggested a commission was formed called the Peel Commission. And it was suggested in response to violence between Arabs and Jews 
prior to World War II. So Jews coming in, Arabs already living there. Um, as I said, not only were Arabs fighting Jews, both by, and by that I keep saying this, not all Arabs are Muslim in Palestine. It used to be a lot more uh, bigger community of Arab Christian. Uh, there's, a, there's a long tradition of Arab Christianity. Um, it's, it's diminished a little bit some, but uh, areas like Bethlehem used to be, you know, 80, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it used to be 85%. Arab Christian, and now it's flipped. It's about 85% uh, Arab Muslim. Now, but there's still a, a lot of Arab Christian um, groups there. But the Jews were also fighting amongst themselves. There were some Jews, and you don't need to know all these different groups, but there were kind of re a revisionist Zionist liberation army. There was a radical group that, you, that employed terrorist attacks. Um, there were also these generic freedom fighters for Israel. You begin to see all kinds of Jewish militant groups popping up who are willing to fight not only the Arabs, but also the British. Because keep in mind, the British are the occupiers at this time. The British have control. And if anybody doesn't belong there, it's the British, right? In, in their minds. So they're doing all kinds of things, including, and I'll show you a picture of it in a second, blowing up the King David Hotel. There was a, there was a very nice uh, hotel. It's, it's the big, fancy hotel in Jerusalem today. Uh, and the British were, were there using it. And some of these Arab terror, uh, pardon me, some of these Jewish terrorists went and blew up one of the wings of the hotel. They, tried to, they were trying to drive the British out of Jerusalem, out of the area. And many of these, what they called terrorists at the time, Jewish terrorists, as soon as the state of Israel was formed, were the leaders of the government. Think about that. Who, when, when, when a bunch of Americans are, are using guerrilla tactics to fight off the British redcoats who, who keep marching in redcoats and white lines and white snow. Pardon me. Redcoats and straight lines and white snow. And the Americans are hiding behind trees. They're not fighting the fair, right? They're hiding behind trees. and they're, You guys have all seen the Patriot. Right? So they're doing all these things. that You're not supposed to fight that way. You're not supposed to use guerrilla tactics. You're supposed to stand out there and fight like men, right? Um, this, this is well, rebels. These are American rebels until we won. Then all of a sudden, those guys who were leaders of the rebellion became what presidents and you know all the different Washington and all these guys who, who led this rebellion. And that's what happened with Israel, and that's what many Palestinians are arguing today is happening in Palestine. Palestinians are saying, "Yeah, you call us terrorists now, but if we win, if we establish a state, that's going to be our leaders, our presidents." So be careful. I know I don't like violence. I don't like violence. Don't shoot each other. Ever. But be careful who you call a terrorist. <clears throat> An early two-state solution was proposed. Okay, after you win. And this was come to be, it came to be known as the partition of Palestine. Again, resulting from the fuel plan. Um, there was going to be the original plan, and yeah, you can see a map over here, a Jewish state in Galilee. Upper Jordan and the coastal plain, purple. Okay. And then there would be an Arab state in the central hills, West Bank, and the Negev. The Negev is the word, as you know, for all this. This is desert. The, uh, both sides in the modern conflict, Israelis and Palestinians, always claim about, look at all the land. It's a disproportionate amount of land that the Israelis are given. A lot of it is desert. Yeah, there are some towns down here, but a lot of it is just, it's just desert land. The stuff, that's, the stuff that's most important to most people are in and around Jerusalem, the coast, which means you can do maritime trade, and the north, which is a lot of the farming, where all the water is, right? The highest point in the Middle East is Mount Hermon up there. See that little horn that goes up in the purple? That's Mount Hermon, highest point. Snow-capped, the only ski resort in the Middle East, right, is up there, um, or in this region. And then this is the lowest point on the face of the Earth. So you get all kinds of water up there, goes into the Sea of Galilee or Canaric, and then flows down here. And by the time it gets here, you can't use it anymore because it's the soil salt. The water evaporates and goes into the water cycle. So the trick is to siphon off as much water as you can for farming. Now, north of the Sea of Galilee used to be a place called the Hula Valley, malaria-infested swampland. There's water everywhere. And one of the things a lot of the early Jewish settlers did in the north was drain the swamps. So then they could farm the land, A, get rid of the malaria, and B, farm the land. 
they drain all the swamps, but then they turn around and plant crops, which sucks more water, which is why I've told you from the beginning, Jerusalem is actually a secondary issue. Uh, you know, right of return, all these things that we're going to talk about later today and tomorrow. Those are all very important issues, but the water is going to be the big one. Water is always what drives uh, states and agreements and all that. So just like California. I'm right from Fresno and we're in Los Angeles and people up there don't like people down here because you all, we all, steal their water and their mine. I've heard more than one person say, they want to blow up the California aqueduct. You know what the California aqueduct is? It brings water here from there. They want that because the farmers are up there saying, we need more water for our farms if you want to eat. And LA's saying, no, we need more water for our people. And, but we're one state. Imagine if you have two states fighting over this. Anyways, um, Jerusalem was going to be an international city. They recognized way back in the day that there was no way to divide Jerusalem uh, into you know, two states and put a border. You just can't really do it. It's, it's built upon itself for so many thousands of years. Uh, and there's people you know, completely integrated. Um, they were just going to vote this off as uh, an international city. One scholar said, if it truly is a city of God, then let's let God control it. Let's don't let one state control it. Let's have a, a council. And, and basically, this was going to be put under the jurisdiction of the UN. Okay. So this is basically the result of the Peel Plan. It's a partition plan, the original two-state solution. right? Palestinians. Uh, we'll have a state in what is the green area. You, you recognize this as the West Bank today, about right here. It looks like a kidney bean, West Bank. And then, of course, Israel would be the northern region. Um, this would be an international city. Uh, Israel today also has all the negative. They ended up with it, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, what happened? The United Nations General Assembly Resolution 181 uh, uh, is approved. The Zionists accept it, even though they don't like it. They call it like the bare minimum, the acceptable minimum. And the Arabs and the Palestinians that live there reject it. We're not going to acknowledge a Jewish state when there is none. Why would they accept a Jewish state? And the UN said, no, this is a good idea this way. Israel, Jews can have a state, and Palestine will finally get a state to call their own. It won't be an Ottoman state. It won't be controlled by the Jordanians. It won't be or the Transjordanians. And they rejected it. They want no Jewish state in the area. And of course, then fighting breaks out. Now, it's called the Arab-Israeli War. Of course, Israel calls it the War of Independence. Tensions get so bad. Again, we talked about Jewish uh, terrorists coming in and blowing up, trying, trying, they're trying to drive the British out and the Arabs out at the same time. They want their state, and you get this movement towards an Israeli state, a modern Jewish state. The British finally one day, and this is this was kind of the trend at the time, right? Uh, we, we know that the British one day in India said, you know what, we're out of here. And they started giving up some of their other, other British protectorates. Um, and they said, you know what, we've decided unilaterally that we're going to leave this mess here in Palestine and Israel. And so on uh, May, the mid at midnight, Friday night, May 14th or 15th, the British <coughs> left. They packed up and they left uh, Palestine. Now, many say that the British tipped off the Jews at the time. We can't call them Israeli. You guys know the difference between Jews and either ethnicity or religion. Israel refers to the political state. Okay. So prior to Israel, you had some Jewish Zionists who, who wanted a state. Um, many scholars say that the British tipped them off and told them, here's when we're leaving, here's the route we're going, which allowed the Jews to come right in on that heels and do things like Operation Kilshan, right? Operation Pitchfork. Which, what they did was, as the British, who had been renting a Russian uh, area, a Russian Orthodox uh, religious area, they had been renting that and kind of using it as their headquarters, as they buttoned up their last thing and started their caravan out, Jews stepped right in at the time and basically tried to tried to take over that whole area. So as the British power vacuum leaves, the Jews tried to step right in and say, no, nope, we're claiming this city. And it's right there in central Jerusalem. So this is, and they, they referred to the, the leader of the British uh, in that, in that uh, area was called Benin, and it was a Russian Orthodox place. So they called it Benin Grad, kind of as a joke, Benin Grad. Anyways, 
uh, but Operation Pitchfork comes in and tries to take over. They're trying to take up all the space that the British are leaving behind. The Jordanians show up the next day. Now keep in mind that the Jordanian army, um, there was rumor that they had secretly met with the British, the Jordanians. Remember, remember uh, they took this area that is called Transjordan and gave it to Abdullah I. And there was uh, an idea that Abdullah, who was a commander of the Arab Legion at the time and had the strongest army involved in the war, would basically, um, he had no intention of resisting uh, the creation of a Jewish state, which is not politically the thing. He, he was trying to think practically. He figured, you know what, the UN has approved this. There's going to be a Jewish state. I won't get in the way. Okay? and then I can be in control. So the British kind of had a, a, a secret agreement with Abdullah, at least that was the idea. But when word of that got out, um, that, that Abdullah had met secretly with um, the, uh, members of the Jewish agency, that is what, what would become the Israeli government prior to the existence of the state of Israel, um, that there was so much pressure put on him not to accept an Israeli state, not to accept a Jewish state in their midst, that he basically backed out of that tacit agreement and said, no, we're going to fight. So now the biggest and strongest uh, army, uh, the Jordanians, are going to fight uh, against the Jews, against the formation of the Jewish state. So they fight, and they fight a lot, and they fight back and forth. And essentially what you've got is Israel taking up, um, taking basically western Jerusalem and portions of the state where there were a lot of Jews, and the Jordanians taking control of what is now the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and of course they've got the, the Kingdom of Jordan. And they, it becomes an intractable war. So the UN steps in and arranges a truce, and you get what we call the armistice. This is in 1949. So you'll hear a lot of references to the, um, the armistice of 1949. A lot of people say, let's just go back to the borders that we originally negotiated in 1949. And now Israel, you know, it used to be Israel was like, yes, let's have this. And the, and the Palestinians rejected it. Nowadays, the Palestinians are saying, let's go back to that. But now the Israelis are rejecting it. Why? Because they've moved in and developed so much of East Jerusalem. They don't want to go back. Right? They've developed a lot. So now you've got this position. We'll talk about settlements a little later. Um, you've got this thing where the Jews are continuing because they've got lots of money coming in from lots of places, and they've really done a good job of developing their economy and tourism and doing all kinds of industry. They've got money to, to build, whereas that Palestinian money isn't coming in. Now, you could argue that that's because the policies the Israelis have had towards Palestinians are very impressive, and they, they don't allow Palestinian uh, investment. You could also argue, as several have, that a lot of the other Arab countries aren't funding Palestine. They'll give them rhetoric, and they'll give them support, and when you have a thing like you had this weekend, they'll condemn the Jews, and they'll send them guns, but they're not investing heavily in the development of Palestine. For whatever reason, uh, the Israelis have actually built a lot of this West Bank out, so that now when people are playing, let's go back to those lines from the 1949 armistice, um, the Israelis are saying, no, we've already got a, a, a settlement built here, but we'll build the wall around that. And of course, you remember our kidney bean, where's my pen? You remember we talked about the kidney bean shape of the, of the West Bank? There's kind of this kidney bean that comes in around Jerusalem here. As the Israelis begin to build into here, now all of a sudden they want to build the border like this around this settlement and like this. It's, good. it's like we do politically here with gerrymandering. You guys know what gerrymandering is? You draw the lines of a district so that it's advantageous to you. What they're doing is they're eating in to these old armistice lines. And the Palestinians are now saying, no, if we put in a border, if we're going to have two states, we put the lines where they should go. Just because you've developed this land in the last 50 years doesn't mean you get to keep it. It's still ours. You're still developing our land. And of course, you have the problem of Jerusalem. How do you split this city in half? You've seen how on top of each other this city is. How do you how do you how do you split this city up? The UN arranges uh, a, a peace treaty. Israel and Jordan 
sign it in 1949, and they create a green line. Remember, Jordan's kind of a big player here. And they create what's called today the green line. It's kind of a ceasefire line. It's what became the West Bank line. The West Bank, this line goes right down the middle of Jerusalem, and it goes back out. And the idea is that the Jordanians take control of the West Bank, and of course their country, Jordan. And this new state, Israel, has control of the rest of, of Palestine. Um, so that's that's the green line, and that's kind of the agreement they came to. Now, who's left out here? Israel gets a state. It's not everything that they wanted, but they got it. Jordan gets control of the West Bank. What do the Palestinians get? They still don't have a state. And because of the war and the hostilities, I think over 700, the minimum number, the, the conservative estimate is 700,000 Palestinians are forced to flee. Right? There, there's war going on. You, you're refugees. You, you're up and you're out. You're waiting. You're waiting outside somewhere else so that the war is to stop and then you can come back. The problem is, what do you come back to? The state of Israel has been established. There's new owners in town. So these guys don't want to go back because there's now a, a new state there. Right? And the Jordanians, who have now taken over the West Bank, don't necessarily want the refugees. So now you've got a situation where you've got Palestinian people who have been kind of kicked out of their home. And Israel has a new state, so they can't go back there. And the Jordanians don't want them. Because it's not like they're, they're going to be taxpaying and do, doing all kinds of... Uh, nobody wants these refugees. To this day, there are people, Palestinian refugees, that are living all around. Um, say they're in Jordan, they're in Lebanon, they're, in, they're all over the place. And they're waiting to come home. It's called the right of return. The right of return. Part of any uh, peace settlement between Palestine and Israel is going to have to address the right of return. But, you know, the bigger numbers are like millions of refugees who want to come home to where they've lived and where their families have lived for hundreds of years. But at the time, Jordan didn't want them and Israel didn't want them. And so they're out there. So what do you do with a million people? in refugee camps. Okay, moving forward. Here's kind of a map. Remember, uh, north is that way. Do I need to go back? Do you guys need to write somewhere? Like this, if I need to go back? Okay. So you've got uh, north is this direction, because uh, Near Eastern maps always have east at the top. So basically what you've got here is the old city here in the center. You can see the Dome of the Rock here. And you've basically got a, a split. West Jerusalem is where the Knesset is. This is kind of their Congress and their Supreme Court Museum. You've got West Jerusalem, which is Israeli Jerusalem. And you've got East Jerusalem. And of course, the old city is, is even split into what? A Jewish quarter and a Christian quarter. But the city is divided. Jerusalem is officially divided at the end of, the, of the, the Revolutionary War, the Israeli War of Independence, or the Arab-Israeli War, depending on what you call it. Um, what, do you, what can you tell? This is obviously a modern picture. What can you tell about development in West versus East Jerusalem? Now, look at this. And look at this. And keep in mind that a lot of these settlements that you see, some of these settlements that you see in East Jerusalem are actually Israeli settlements. This is what I mean by the disparity between, you can, you, there's a million arguments on both sides, and I'm not going to pick a side and fight it. I'm just going to give you all the facts and tell you what the numbers are, and you can do what you want with them. Um, but what you've got is there's a lot of economic development going on in West Jerusalem, and there's not a lot. And you can say, well, it's the topography. No, it's not the topography because this is all hills, and it's crazy. Try to drive, trying to drive in this town is insane. It's hard. It's very hard to do. I take a cab. I won't do it. Um, driving out there is a little easier, but it's fun. It's like driving back to Fresno. No, it's just like it's a desert hills. But um, you can see the difference in development. It's like that satellite picture that you see of South and North Korea. Have you ever seen this picture? South Korea is completely lit up and bright, and North Korea is very dark. <laughs> Have you ever seen this? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I'll try to find it maybe for Thursday. But it's this idea that when you split a city, the people who have the money are going to develop and prosper, and the people who don't aren't going to do well. And then they're going to be upset. They're going to say, the policies that are imposed. And keep in mind, where did these policies come from? From the Jews? From the Palestinians? Where did they come from? The Sykes-Picot Agreement. 
the Balfour Declaration, the Peel Plan. Who are these people doing these things? Religious. Yeah, well, not just the Brit, the Europeans, basically. A bunch of white Jer Europeans are dictating what's going to go on over here in Jerusalem. It's never popular for either side, which is why the Israelis were fighting against the British and why the Arabs and Palestinians were fighting against the British. It's never fun for either side. But here you've got a bunch of Europeans dictating kind of the, the Middle East, which is why, I hate the soapbox, which is why um, you hear so many people now say, you know, the US should stop trying to dictate Israeli-Palestinian policy. Because as long as it's coming from us, neither side is going to trust it. Right? They need to do it themselves. And I'll show you a very famous picture that kind of was the pinnacle of that. Uh, let me show you uh, here. Um, here's kind of the boundaries of the development of Jerusalem. Here's your border. This is this would be the green line, right? There's a little DMZ, a demilitarized zone. Of course, the old city is the old city. Nobody knows how to split this up. But you can see that a lot of the development is on the western side, and very little bit is on the eastern side. And some of the settlements on the eastern side are actually Israeli settlements, which is another big uh, bone of contention between Palestinians and Israelis. Still, David Ben-Gurion, as the name you should know, uh, begins to talk once again about the centrality of Jerusalem to the Jewish people. In December 49, he says, Jewish Jerusalem is an organic and inseparable part of the state of Israel, as it is an inseparable part of the history of Israel and the faith of Israel and of the very soul of our people. Jerusalem is the heart of hearts of the state of Israel. And Israel defies the international community and makes West Jerusalem the capital of the Israeli state with the, basically the idea that Jerusalem will be the eternal capital of Israel, this modern state of Israel. They were building up Tel Aviv, but Jerusalem, mostly because of a lot of the reasons we talked about in this class, but also for political reasons, said we're going to make West Jerusalem the, the eternal capital of the, of the Israeli state, the Jewish state. So you can see how Ben-Gurion was playing on the history that you've learned about in this class. He's playing on this history to say, this is why Jerusalem must be our capital. Now keep in mind, they don't control the eastern half of their capital. They only control one half of the city. But Jerusalem is going to be the eternal capital of Israel, according to David Ben-Gurion. Okay? Uh, which means the Jordanians aren't really liking this. Because right? they, they're the ones controlling the eastern side. Do you want to go back? Yeah. So, to this day, is West Bank still considered Jordanian? No. We'll, we'll talk about how that changes in a second. We, I had mentioned uh, Abdullah I. Uh, Abdullah bin Hussein came in Jordan. There he is. Uh, the Jordanian army showed up on May 16, 1948. Remember, the Brits left at midnight uh, the day before. Um, Occupation by both Israel and Jordan was considered illegal by the United Nations. Remember, they had a little claim that they wanted to do what was an international city. Um, Arabs, Palestinians called this al Nikbah. They call it the catastrophe. The Israelis called it the War of Independence. The Palestinians call it the catastrophe. The idea that a Jewish state just one day overnight emerged where they wanted their state to be. Uh, it referred to the uh, establishment of the Israeli state and the assertion of Jordanian control of the West Bank. As I said, you often hear, you know, the Israelis moved in to Jerusalem and to Palestine and set up a state, but the Jordanians controlled, controlled the eastern half, and the Palestinian people who lived there got nothing. Jordan got something, Israel got something, the people, the Palestinian people got nothing. They didn't like that. So when King Abdullah was uh, visiting the Al-Aqsa Mosque in April of 1951, it was a Palestinian who murdered him, who, who assassinated him up there. Uh, why? Because, as I said, there were rumors that he, were, he was in negotiations with not only the British before they left, but also with what are now the Israeli leaders, the leaders of the Israeli government, to kind of make a peace to split and to, okay, we'll, we'll agree not to fight one another, and I'll control the East and the West Bank, and you guys can have Israel. And of course, the Palestinian people who are living there don't like this, because they get nothing. So he takes out King Abdullah I. 
uh, before he died, King Hussein declared Jerusalem the second capital of the state of Jordan. Right? They have a capital in Amman. That was a beautiful city. If you ever get a chance to go there, Amman is just so beautiful. Great food, great, great hotels. More four-star hotels per capita in Jerusalem and Amman than, than, than anywhere else. So they like nice hotels. Right? So that's a good place to stay. But they declared, why did he do that? Why did he declare Jerusalem the second capital? For ideological reasons. We want this town. We want the history of this town. There's not much there other than a war going on and a bunch of people who can't get along. But for ideological reasons, Abdullah I wanted Jerusalem to stake Jordanian claim uh, to, this, to this area. And the Jordanians actually developed tourism. In 1948, there was one hotel. I told you their affinity for hotels, right? Uh, and by 1967, there were 70 hotels. And 85% of the economy of the West Bank was tourism. Keep in mind that uh, Europeans had started to come over uh, and uh, set up, they, they had set up in the last century the Palestine Exploration Fund. Archaeology was still kind of treasure hunting. But the idea of Christian pilgrimages, people would come to Jerusalem so they could walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Muslims would come so they could they could visit the uh, Dome of the Rock so they could see where uh, the Prophet Muhammad uh, leapt up into the sky. Right? Tourism, this was the Holy Land. This was the place where people would come and pay money just be in places where things happen. And so they capitalized on that. Jordan, uh, the Jordanians took the eastern side. All of those desert things, Qumran is, is in the West Bank today. Um, a lot of Jesus' ministry is in the Galilee, but then he came south. So they kind of split the ground. Then we get to 1967. Now, as I said, uh, Ben is talking about Jerusalem being the eternal capital of the, Israel, of the state of Israel. But on the other side, you've got um, the Jordanians saying, no, no, this, this is going to be our second capital. And the Israelis were developing. They, they had a lot of help from the United States, a lot of money, a lot of military assistance from us. Um, there, there are some great t-shirts when you go over there that says, don't worry, America, Israel is behind you. The, 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 the Israelis were kind of mocking the idea that um, many people there say that if there was no United States, there would be no state of Israel, which may be very much true. I don't know. But we get, uh, the U.S. gives a lot of money and support to Israel. So we get to 1967, and here's basically, in a nutshell, how it plays out. The Soviets informed Syria that Israel's going to attack. Syria being up here. Okay. Um, so Syria starts getting on the phone with Egypt, Jordan, and all this stuff. And Syria tells Egypt they're going to attack. I don't know what Israel's doing, they're going to do something. So Egypt amasses all of its troops down here on the Sinai Peninsula. Syria signs a pact, a part of Jordan signs a pact with Egypt, and they're going to do a preemptive strike. Since the Israelis are going to, they, they think, are going to contact them, um, they're going to do a preemptive strike, and they're going to wipe out the state of Israel once and for all. 47, 48, 49, and now it's 67. 20 years is long enough. Let's do, let's do away with this. Okay? The Israelis figure out that the Syrians, the Egyptians, Lebanon, Syria is the major power broker in Lebanon. Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, basically, the countries on all sides of them are going to attack, so they, in turn, uh, do a preemptive strike on all of them. They wipe out the Egyptian Air Force immediately. They go in and they take out, uh, they, they enter the old city, and you get this, you get this very interesting comment. Just to talk about the mythology, the idea, the ideology of Jerusalem. Now, Steve Luna uh, announces that the wall, uh, at the wall, pardon me, we shall never again move out of here. Now, think about that. When was he there and when did he get moved out of here? But it's this idea of corporate identity. That it's not just me and my life, it's just it would be like. saying, never again will I let Los Angeles uh, take, do something to the president. Never again. Los Angeles has never done anything to me, right? It would be quite good to me. But because it did something to my ancestors, stole our water or something, 
but that, that it's a corporate mentality, right? That because it happened to people before me, it's happened to me. So we will never be uh, kicked out of uh, Jerusalem again. Well, he never been kicked out of Jerusalem, to my knowledge. But it's this idea of Jews, Jews in general, we'll never have to leave this place again. Um, a, a terrible, terrible, vicious battle uh, takes place, and Israel not only wipes out the Egyptian Air Force, they take the Sinai Peninsula, they actually go up and they take the Golan Heights, which is this area uh, up here in the north from Syria, Syria, Lebanon. Um, they would later give the Sinai back to Egypt in exchange for a peace. Um, and not until the 90s did they make full on peace with Jordan, but now you can cross from Israel to Jordan at, at a couple of places. Uh, they still haven't made peace with Syria. Why? Because Israel still uh, controls the Golan Heights, which Syria considers to be theirs. And it, it was 99 or 2000, I was up there in the Golan Heights, and there was rumor, and there were news reports, um, uh, that the, what's al-Assad, Bashir, what was Bashir's father's name? Hafez al-Assad, the, the, the leader of, of Syria, was talking about doing, a, uh, you give us back to Golan, with Ahab Barak at the time, and we'll, we'll make a peace treaty with you. And he died the next day. And his son, his son took over, uh, and now there's still no peace, and Israel uh, holds on to the Golan Heights. So that's what's been going on. Basically, they took, in the Six-Day War, Israel took Egypt, they took the Golan Heights, they gave Egypt back to, to uh, pardon, they gave the Sinai back to Egypt in exchange for peace. Jordan now has peace. Syria and Lebanon have not made peace. But the biggest thing that happened during the Six-Day War is they took eastern Jerusalem. So Israel on this day calls that Unification Day. For they unified east and west Jerusalem, and now Jerusalem will forever be the eternal, single, undivided capital of Israel. That's, that's the, the rhetoric that you, that you get. Okay. Now, Moshe Dayan, who was the Israeli general, who was who was one of who was commanding when, when he told uh, uh, what was his name? Who was the general who actually took the Golan? He was the, the, the head of the Antiquities Authority for years. I'll think of it in a second. Drury, Amir Drury. Um, uh, he actually sent a general to take the Golan. It was bloody. It took him three tries. But the Israelis finally took the Golan Heights. And the reason they want the Golan Heights, not just for the farmland, is it's the highest point. Whoever controls the Golan Heights can see directly into Beirut, right? Straight down, directly into Damascus, straight down. So it's a strategic high place. Moshe um, Dayan, who actually gave that order to take um, the, uh, the Golan Heights, turned around later and said, I probably shouldn't have done that. Late in his life, he became a big advocate for peace, and he said, I shouldn't have taken the Golan Heights. It was, it was too costly of a battle. We didn't get enough for it. It cost a lot of Israeli lives. And he was also smart enough to give control of the Haram, remember the Haram al-Sharif, al-Sharif, to the Muslims. It's called the Waqf, the Jordanians control. This is why we said the Israelis control the Western Wall, but the top of the platform is actually controlled by Jordanians. Because after the Six-Day War, they unified the city of Jerusalem, and they said, no, you can have control over the Dome of the Rock and the, and the Aleksa Mosque. And then, of course, Jews are forbidden to pray at the Haram. In fact, I'll show you a picture here in a second of a sign leading up there that says, Jews don't go up there. Too holy, I think, is what the sign says. Too holy. Pray at the Western Wall. But this is kind of the agreement. Jews don't go up on the top. Uh, and, and the Arabs, the Muslims, won't uh, mess with uh, Jews praying at the wall. That's kind of their agreement. Um, the Israeli Knesset, in the wake of the Six-Day War, guess why they called it the Six-Day War? Okay. Um, it, it was a very quick war. It was surprisingly quick. Um, and they officially annexed the Old City and East Jerusalem. So they took it all. The United Nations rejected this annexation. Basically, the United Nations is still to this day saying, no, you got to go back to the 1947, the, the partition, right, the armistice. We go back to those borders. You get West Jerusalem, you get East Jerusalem. So this is why you always get UN condemnations, one of the reasons, why you always get many UN condemnations of Israelis settling in East Jerusalem. Because the UN, according to the United Nations, are uh, Israel is supposed to confine itself to those uh, approved UN 
area in West uh, Jerusalem. But the Israelis, since for, for a number of reasons, keep building uh, settlements in East Jerusalem, and now that they've unified all of Jerusalem, now you've got a situation where you've got Palestinian Muslims and Christians in East Jerusalem under control of the Israeli government. And you think we complain about our government here. Imagine a government who you think didn't represent you and didn't clean up your trash on your streets and didn't, you know, they're all, it just, anytime you're occupying someone else, it just gives them reason to complain, and rightly so. They feel like they're not represented. Six day war. Let me give you a couple more slides here. Um, I've shown you this picture of the Zion Gate in the past, and you say, man, why is it in such bad shape? That's not crumbling, that's bullet holes. Those are all bullet holes up and around. So and these gates were built to last, and, and uh, there were some fierce battles going on there. Uh, here's another, uh, we, already, we already talked about this, you can read right now. The War of Independence, or the, or the Arab-Israeli War in 48, the Six-Day War in 67. What they did there is they took East Jerusalem. Israelis to East Jerusalem. And I think what we'll do is we'll leave off there. We'll pick up, hold on for a second, we'll pick up on Thursday, finishing off this, and I'll talk to you about the last 10 years, basically the first 10 years of the 21st century. We'll open up for questions, and you guys can ask me anything. See you Thursday. Thanks.